Hello and welcome back to This Complex Life. Today with me, I've got Caroline Burrows. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Marie. Do you want to give the listeners a little bit of an intro into who you are and what you do? I certainly would love to. Thank you for having me today. So I am what we call an accredited mental health social worker. So that means that I am a social worker who has a special expertise and interest in mental health. And I am the director of a private practice where we provide services to folk in the community who need support with their mental health and particularly with experiences of trauma. I'm also a professional trainer and consultant. So what that means is I provide training and mentoring and support to mental health clinicians, so to therapists, to supporting them as they support their clients. That's a lot. <laughs> Huge show. Yeah. So today I wanted to talk, we wanted to talk a little bit about trauma, but in particular a type of therapy called EMDR therapy that's used for for some people with different diagnoses and with traumatic experiences. It's become relatively popular lately. I think since Prince Harry maybe mentioned a few things and I don't know, I've just noticed a, a groundswell of interest in EMDR therapy. As someone who also uses EMDR therapy in my practice, I thought this would be a really great conversation to have. From your side of things, can you explain to to folks listening who might know nothing about EMDR, might not have even heard of it before, what is EMDR therapy? Well, firstly, the name EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which is a bit of a mouthful, but <laughs> actually what it is, is it's a psychological therapy that is intended to support people to overcome the impact of painful life experiences that are continuing to impact them today. So EMDR was developed in the late 1980s by an American psychologist. And since that time, it has really grown in popularity and in its research base and its evidence base. And as you mentioned, it's now become quite a well-known therapy, particularly to support people who have had traumatic life experiences as kids, as teenagers, or as adults. It's based on the idea that our brain has a natural capacity to work toward healing and what we call adaptive resolution. So essentially, when something difficult happens, we have an ability to move forward in our life. The difficulty, though, is, is that when something really significant happens or a really painful life event or a traumatic event, it could be a bushfire, it could be a car accident, it could be a very painful relationship experience, the brain has... I guess it's I've got an ability to overcome those experiences, but the capacity to resolve that in the usual way gets overwhelmed. And what can happen is that that experience can get stuck and continue to have an effect long after it's over. So that can show up in terms of thoughts that you can't stop thinking about or bad dreams, nightmares, flashbacks, or, or body memories, like your feelings in your body, or just the way you see yourself. Your belief about yourself, self-worth, the way you feel about others in the world can get negatively impacted. So what we're wanting to do in EMDR therapy is to be able to do something about that, that problem. And so what we're doing is we're tapping into the brain's natural capacity for healing and 
getting it back up and running again, essentially. So it's a bit like kickstarting a lawnmower by pulling the cord and getting it up and running. So a metaphor that I find really helpful for folks is it's a bit like having a splinter. So if you have a splinter in your finger, your finger's ability to, to recover from that is a bit impacted. But if you remove the splinter, then the body just does what it's meant to do, which is it heals up. If you leave the splinter in there, it can get a bit yucky. It can get really painful and might even get infected. So in the same kind of way, we're wanting to essentially remove the splinter, remove the blockage. And that's where EMDR comes in. So it's a structured form of psychological therapy, so essentially counselling. And what we're doing in EMDR is we are activating the brain in a way that helps the brain's natural ability to heal to get back up and running again. And the way that we do that in EMDR is this rather curious process of what we call bilateral stimulation. Typically that's eye movements. That's how it gets the name, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So in a nutshell, the person identifies what experiences they feel are impacting them. So what life events haven't been resolved naturally and are continuing to affect them in the present and after we've done some preparation to support that person to feel able to face those experiences in the therapy sessions, we actually get the person to, to bring those up in their mind and to feel the emotions that are connected to those experiences. And then the therapist guides that person to follow the therapist's fingers rapidly with their eyes. And we do this in a, quite a repetitive fashion, checking in regularly with the person in between these sets of eye movements. And it helps the brain to process that experience. And typically three things happen. Firstly, that memory, that painful life event, let's say it was a car accident. It may be that at the start of the therapy, that car accident feels really vivid. It's very upsetting to think about and it gets triggered. So when you're driving or when you're out and about, it comes up and you feel the emotions and the body sensations associated with it. And typically at the end of a successful EMDR session, if we were working on that car accident, firstly, it would be less vivid. So less in your face, less you know, like kind of up, up, up close feeling like it's happening still today. It would feel very much more like it's in the past and it's no longer feeling as vivid. Secondly, the emotion attached to that experience reduces. So it feels very much like it's something we're remembering rather than reliving and not having those emotions attached to the experience means we're reliving it from a distance, looking at it from the present as something that happened in the past rather than something that feels like it's happening again. And thirdly, the way we think about the experience changes because it's less vivid and less distressing, we think differently about it. We see it through new eyes. And so whereas before we might feel, even though logically we know it's over, when we're upset and anxious and, and triggered by it, we may feel like I'm not safe. You know, it's going to happen again. Whereas when we process that experience, the new meaning or the new thought might be it's over. I'm safe now. So those are really the things that happen in EMDR. And obviously we address experiences in the person's life that are relevant and over the course of several sessions and working on several memories we start to re see real change in that person's life really positive changes reduction in trauma and other distressing symptoms and an increase in self-confidence and in an ability to cope in life and all of that leads to increased quality of life and living our best life. Yeah, excellent. And a lot of the research base is focused initially on PTSD. And I want to ask, how can we explain to people that 
you don't just have your first session and go straight into that, that EMDR therapy brings in a whole range of other techniques and tools because processing the memory is just one component of that psychological recovery. How can people, like what can they expect during that process? Like how might it look? Mm. You're very right that when it was first developed, it was a much more simple, I suppose, structured intervention specifically for really tangible single incident traumas. And over the course of the years, it's actually evolved to be much, much more widely applicable now for many, many different types of of mental health conditions and concerns, not just post-traumatic stress. It could be depression or anxiety or other things like that. So there are eight phases in EMDR therapy, and those phases don't have a set number of sessions attached to them. So it's not like it's an eight-session therapy per se. It's a little bit more dynamic than that. It varies enormously depending on the person and the complexity of what they're wanting to work on. But certainly it would not just be a single appointment. It would typically be several appointments to get to know each other, so the therapist and the client, to determine what they would like to work on together and to build a relationship so that the person feels comfortable and safe to talk about the important things that have happened in their life. We spend time in those early sessions determining what experiences in that person's life need to be addressed to work toward resolving the concerns that they have in the present and ultimately to achieve their therapy goals. That's considered phase one in EMDR therapy. I'd say typically one, two, three sessions it can vary depending on the person. Then in the second phase in EMDR, there's what we call preparation. And essentially that's where, as you mentioned before, there's often a lot of different therapy techniques and ideas that can be integrated into EMDR. So it could be using mindfulness skills. It could be learning some relaxation techniques. It could be learning new ways of thinking. It's essentially about preparing that person to feel confident, to be able to manage the emotions that are likely to come up when they do get into more directly processing those experiences that are painful because we don't want the person to be re-traumatized we don't want them to be overwhelmed by the experience mm. we want it to be very very manageable it's going to be challenging yeah. but manageable I think that's a really important one and I, I don't know about you but I don't like tell clients we're in phase one and we're in phase two like it is so much more dynamic than that and I've got some people that have spent maybe a year just in phase two, and and that's just been what's ne- what's been needed because if things are still happening alongside life, we might not spend every session just resourcing. We're actually trying to kind of put out fires while deal with an underlying um, negative experience or traumatic memory. So that can take that can take quite a lot trying to build someone's skills and capacity there. That's right. So it can be anything from one session through to months or even longer, as you described. And so it's not about one size fits all. It's about really creating a a tailored approach or a plan that's going to use EMDR in a way that suits that individual person. So, So essentially, that's about skill building. It's about, as you said, resourcing. Essentially, what that means is just bolstering that person's confidence and ability to 
cope, not only in the sessions when you bring up those painful memories so that it's a manageable process, but also outside of sessions. Because what happens is our brain continues to process after we've had an EMDR session. And that can be things like dreams or thoughts or feelings about the experience, just as our brain is continuing to work its way through that. And we want to be able to have confidence that that's going to be okay. The person's going to have tools to cope with that. Can we talk about for people listening who don't know even what that means, let's say we're looking at uh, someone who's experienced a sexual assault. What kinds of resources are you are, are we talking about here? So it varies a lot, but for that example, there's something called grounding that we might teach a person, and grounding is essentially a, a range of different ideas or tools that can help a person to feel present and here in the very moment that they are in. So what typically happens with sexual assault or indeed with any painful memory is that when we are having an experience of remembering it or even reliving it, if it's a memory that's really painful and isn't resolved, we might have a flashback where it feels like it's happening again. It actually feels like we're back in trauma time. It can feel as though it's happening all over again. And so grounding is uh, a simple set of techniques that can help a person to really differentiate between that was then, this is now, it's not happening now. I'm remembering something that happened rather than it is happening now. And that really helps to reduce fear, distress. So an example of a grounding technique is to ask the person to name five things that they can see in the room around them and to describe them. So it might be noticing a green drink bottle that is cylindrical. It might be noticing that there are four pebbles in a little dish on the desk, that they are brown, that they are tan, that they are yellow, mm. and so on and so forth. We go through the different senses, three things or five things or however many you want, and you hear around you. What about what can you touch right now? And so we practice that in the session and the person can then use that in their life. So a simple example might be you're driving. And as you're driving, you suddenly have this memory of an experience. You drive past somewhere that reminds you of that experience and your body reacts as if it's happening again. Your heart starts beating faster. You start feeling really sick in your tummy. You might start sweating. You might start feeling frightened. You could remember your grounding skills and really tangibly use them in that moment to support yourself. So it might be you put your hands on the steering wheel and really focus on the touch or the feel of the thread of the steering wheel. It might be you press your back into the car seat and you feel the weight of the seat behind you. It might be that you listen to what you can hear around you. It might be that you feel the warmth of the heater. It might be you smell your dog in the back seat. Whatever it might be, it's about getting yourself back in the moment that you are in. And that way, whilst it's an uncomfortable memory, it's a memory rather than reliving. And that typically for people helps them to calm down, to feel much more settled. So that's one example of, of many different techniques and tools that we can teach. So how would you compare that? Because I, I, I work with people doing these similar things. And sometimes I find comparing it to like a physical injury can be quite helpful. Like let's say someone has... I don't know, dislocated a shoulder doing breaststroke in the pool and then they go into physio, it might take several sessions to build up strength before you even then get back in the pool and work on that particular stroke again. Is that like what would be an like what would be an analogy or a comparison that you would do? Because it's more than just knowing, okay, so I have to ground myself. It's actually knowing, knowing it 
implementing it and successfully using it as a tool to manage distress. And that could take weeks or months to do. And then you might like try another one and then try another one and need to know that the person can feel safe at home alone, that they've got someone to call, that they're not, that's not going to trigger suicidal thoughts or self-harm or binge drinking. Like we actually, there's so many other things we need to manage before we get them in the swimming pool again. Like how do you explain it to people if they're trying to understand, okay, so I get it. I've got to grab myself. Now what? Like, can we do the, the, the EMDR bit yet? But that, that is EMDR therapy is the whole process. That's right. And it's interesting you mentioned about a sports injury. I often talk to people about when you're doing any exercise, it takes time to build up muscle, doesn't it? And fitness. And in the same way, it's about building what I call psychological muscle. It's about building up those skills and it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And I'm not sure whether people will have heard of the idea of neuroplasticity. It's a bit of a jargon word, but essentially (laughs) we now know through neuroscience in recent decades that the brain isn't just stuck the way it was when we had trauma back in say childhood that actually the brain can change and we call it plasticity it is plastic in a sense so what that means is through the right supports and skills that are repeated over and over the brain has a capacity to rewire and to change and that's a brilliant thing so it means just because we've coped in a particular way in the past that hasn't worked so well for us or we've been stuck in a problem doesn't mean that can't change so the reason i mentioned that neuroplasticity so the idea that the brain can change we can learn new things and rewire the way we cope is that it takes time for that to happen so essentially Another metaphor that I often use with people is if you imagine that you are you know, driving down a freeway, you've done it a hundred times, it's a well-worn old track versus if you go through the bush, now this is amusing because I very, very rarely go in the bush, I'm not like <laughs> personally, but I appreciate the metaphor. If you're bush bashing, you know, if you're doing the same path over and over, it takes time, obviously, to forge a new path and to clear it. It's kind of like if you're walking and you see the same people, not the same people, but people tread uh, the same path over and over, the grass gets worn and, and the bushes kind of get cleared out. In the same way, we need to actually create those paths, literally, uh, metaphorically, I suppose, uh, in our own brain. And that is only through treading that path over and over again. So with grounding skills, it simply isn't going to be helpful if we just do it once in a blue moon. It's something we need to do repetitively. And I typically say to people, the best way to do it is when you're not feeling distressed and triggered to start with is actually just do it regularly. Every time you're brushing your teeth in the morning, have it be just something you do as you're brushing your teeth. Focus on the taste of the mint of the toothpaste, the feeling of the brush in your hand. It might be whenever you have your evening meal you focus on the sensation of the food and the smell and the taste even just for one minute of the meal mm. so when we practice these things over and over it's going to be much more available to us when we are distressed and when mm. we are triggered as a hiker i do use that metaphor very frequently with people of when you're you're going on a new on a new hike you follow the path that's well worn you kind of know and you can bush bash a little bit. Maybe you've got a compass or a map. But then I think about if if that path isn't really well worn, if it's an area that's not explored often and it starts raining and your glasses fog up and you can't read the map or you don't know if you got it the right way and it's cold and you're stressed, it's really, really hard to then focus 
to find the path if it, it's almost non-existent. But if that was well-worn, if it was a familiar route, all those other environmental stresses, they would still be difficult, but you kind of know where you're going. And, and, you know, sometimes using cross-country skiing, any metaphor, it's that exact thing of that path is well-worn when we're under pressure, when we're stressed, we can kind of do it automatically without mm-hmm. as much effort or without as much thought. Yeah, I really agree. And so obviously that process of learning those new skills, building up that psychological muscle, there's so many metaphors, <laughs> walking the path, that takes <laughs> pick, your fa- pick your favourite and go with that. That's right. So I, I explain to people that we don't just dive in to yeah. waving our fingers and following with your eyes on those old memories because it's too much too soon for most people. And we want this to be a really manageable and affirming process, not something that is overwhelming or makes you just feel even more frightened or diminished in yourself. So there are different diagnoses that this is used for. I find, for example, certain phobias, the the turnaround to do all eight phases is maybe a lot less. So if someone has a fear of vaccinations or... I don't know, flying, some common ones maybe. I don't know, spiders, why would you want to hold a spider to be on me? But some of those, if it's linked to a particular thing, I don't need to spend months and months in that phase two because it's a really quite targeted single incident event. But something like disassociative identity disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, even borderline personality disorder, anything with years of repeated maybe incidences of trauma or negative experience, even just trusting your therapist and feeling that you've got some autonomy and some capacity to have tough conversations with them can take a long time. How do you find, you know, across the kind of experience of mental ill health, those different diagnoses or different presentations, kind of the course of treatment looks for them? Hmm. I think that as you described, it often will make a difference to the length of the therapy. It will also be, helpful in determining what sorts of things we might focus on in particularly that preparation and resourcing phase, which we call phase two, and then phases three and beyond are really when we're working with the memories and and reprocessing those. I think for somebody who has had really painful events in their childhood particularly, and what I mean by that is, is we call it like attachment wounding or attachment trauma. And what that means is not just what happened to us, but what didn't happen? So if we had an absence of warmth, validation, love, praise, support, in that second phase in EMDR, it's not just about teaching some skills to be able to cope with painful emotions that might come up when we process their memories. It's actually also about really building in internal resources around being able to essentially provide for ourselves some of what we didn't have when we were growing up. So what I mean by that is a lot of people who have had really painful experiences as kids talk to themselves in a really, really harsh way. You know, we might call it like the inner critic or the, you know, punitive voice or whatever we want to call it. And resourcing isn't just about learning grounding skills. It's actually often about learning how to relate to ourselves differently with a bit more kindness, with compassion, internal nurturing. And it might sound a bit woo-woo, but that stuff is often what we do in that second phase in EMDR with people who have had that 
deeper, earlier type of trauma. So it's not just about skills. It's actually really almost about um, developing a whole new way of relating to ourselves. So obviously that takes that takes time. That takes months typically. And so I think for a person who has had really complex or repeated experiences of trauma or painful events, then really this is a therapy that takes months or maybe even a year or two. And as you mentioned earlier, it's not it's not linear. It's not like you just every session just processing a trauma memory. You might be also focusing on stress that comes up day to day. It might be some, you know, unexpected things happen. And it's almost like we're meandering a little bit through EMDR memory reprocessing, as well as working on other things. So that process, that more meandering type of longer process where we're using EMDR alongside other therapies, that's not unexpected at all. Whereas if you're working with somebody who comes in and says, I'm hiring you to get me on a plane. I've got an overseas trip in a month. I had a really painful experience or a really scary experience when I was on a flight where there was terrible turbulence. I don't want to get on this flight, but if I cancel this overseas trip, my family are going to kill me. So I have to be able to cope with this. And they might identify that there's actually not earlier stuff or other stuff in their life that they either need to or want to work on. I will say, sometimes people say, look, there are some deep skeletons in the closet, but you know what? That's not what I want to do at the moment. I'm hiring- Keep them in there. <laughs> That's right. Keep them in the closet. And I'm hiring you to get me on the plane. So that is a much, much more, I suppose, focused, narrow application of NDR. And that typically is going to be a lot quicker to get through those different phases and we might just teach the client a couple of skills and explain what's going to happen and then get into it the phases three and beyond where we're reprocessing the memory because that's the person's preference that is what they're asking for and also sometimes it might be time sensitive they might have a flight to get on in a month so it really does vary and we are guided by what the person would like to do we obviously provide recommendations For example, some people might say, I only want to work on this small piece of work. I don't want to touch all of this other stuff. And as we get to know them, we may discern that actually it's going to be pretty tricky to do that. We may actually need to discuss whether that's going to be possible. Whereas other times it may be much clearer that we can contain other stuff. So we make those decisions collaboratively, the client and the therapist together. How can people advocate for themselves because we're in this space all the time so we forget how anxiety provoking or difficult or you know some people might stew on on the idea of going to therapy for years or decades and then they get there and they're nervous they're overwhelmed they're worried about being judged like there's a million thoughts racing what are a couple of bits of advice you can give someone to like what questions can they ask or what you know, they've looked at someone's bio, they've picked a therapist that maybe something resonated with them or their GP recommended and they're sitting there terrified, nervous, anxious, worried. What? How can they start to advocate for themselves a little bit? How can they say what their goals are? Because I think you're right. Some people are happy to be in therapy for a long time and work through a range of things. And some are sort of like, look, I know I have all of this stuff, but right now I just need help getting through this separation or divorce or I'm having issues at work and I do have all this childhood stuff but I'm not in a place right now financially mentally capacity wise to deal with that what can people do to prepare for their first few sessions 
Well, I think firstly, as you mentioned about bios, I think certainly to take the time to have a look into who might be the best person to see. And that can either be through a personal recommendation. So say a friend or somebody that might've seen that particular therapist, it might be a referral from a doctor, but then to have a look on that person's website, for example, if they have one, which most of us do these days, I think, and to really get a, a vibe of whether that person feels like they might be the right fit. So even just kind of what the, what the sense you get from their, their photo or from the information that they share, what their, path of training or their background might be, what sort of clients they like to work with. And then once it comes to the first session, I mean, I think any question is completely okay, but I think the sort of questions that can be particularly helpful to ask a therapist is, you know, how long do you anticipate this process might take? If you feel any concern about things like privacy, being able to ask about that, you know, is what we discuss confidential? Are there any circumstances where that might not be the case? And how would we know that I was getting toward a point where we were able to finish or ready to finish? What happens if I need to cancel or change an appointment? There's lots of other questions, but they're the first that come to mind. And I just really want to say to anybody listening that as therapists, we actually really welcome questions from our clients. Mm. It can feel a bit like there's a bit of a power imbalance, like there's the expert and then the the person who is the patient or the client. And firstly, as therapists, we are encouraged in our training to do our own therapy. I personally have had a lot of my own therapy, and I think most therapists will have done their own personal work, so we know what it's like to be in the other chair. But I believe um, we genuinely want to work collaboratively and in partnership with our clients. And so we really do welcome feedback. We invite questions. I don't know about you, Marie, but I certainly much prefer when I work with somebody who is willing and able to have an open conversation with me about concerns that might come up for them or questions that they have, because that way it feels much less like we're doing to the person. We're actually being with the person and working in partnership. That, that That's why we do what we do. And that's where typically people are going to get the best outcomes. Well, that was actually what I was going to say is the research, like we don't know why therapy works. And for the last 50 years, our outcomes haven't improved at all, regardless of the types of therapies that exist. But what seems to be consistent across all the research is the single greatest factor to determine success is the relationship you have with the therapist. So it, feeling awkward and uncomfortable, that's that's kind of expected for some people, but not liking them, feeling like there's tension and, and it's abrupt and not being able to talk about that, it might be that that's not a good fit. And so maybe one of the things you want to work on is your ability to be assertive. So it makes sense that that might be something you're struggling with, but it needs to feel safe. You need to be able to have those conversations. And even if you say that at the start, to learn how to do that is very helpful. Uh, and I do spend a lot of time with clients even scripting questions for them to then take to their psychiatrist or their GP where we've established a good working relationship, but they're still nervous about other folks. So we might say, okay, what do you want to ask? And then go to your GP and say, I just want to grab my phone out. I've got some notes. And taking some um, control over that is is so important. I think it really sets up a really strong foundation to do great work. And I couldn't agree more that if we don't feel comfortable with the therapist that we're seeing, I'd, 
encourage folk to, to give it a couple of sessions typically to see how that goes. I mean, gosh, it's the first session's a disaster, of course. Don't go back. But sometimes feeling uncomfortable can be because of our own past experiences in other relationships or with other health professionals. But certainly if that persists beyond the first few sessions, and particularly if we feel judged or criticised or put down by the therapist, which I'd certainly hope wouldn't happen because that's absolutely not what we intend to do, mm. I would absolutely encourage folk to, to find a different person. I will say, though, I just really appreciate how challenging that is in this current climate where, let's be honest, it's not easy to find a person who has availability to begin with, let alone a different therapist. So yeah. I understand there are challenges around all of this, but I couldn't agree more that having a sense of some control and some autonomy and almost taking some responsibility. I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I mean that in a really positive way, taking responsibility for our own personal journey and our own mental well-being actually empowers us to, to do great work. It's going to motivate us. It's not us being a passive participant in the process. It's us actually being really actively involved. Yeah, absolutely. And so if, if somebody is listening to this and they're like, oh, okay, I might like to try EMDR therapy again, or for the first time, or even just other therapy? Like where can they go to find more information about EMDR specifically and just what to look for in someone's bio or website that they might be able to offer EMDR therapy specifically? I think a great place for folk to start is the EMDR Association of Australia's website. So that's emdra, E-M-D-R-A-A.org, and that is the peak body for EMDR therapy in Australia. And so they have a lot of really great information for the public, including some animations and videos and, and handouts and things that provide really objective, non-biased information about EMDR therapy. They also have a directory where you can find EMDR therapists and you can actually also see the level of what we call accreditation of that particular person as well. I'm not suggesting any of the therapists listed on there are not good therapists, but if you're interested in seeing who might have a higher level of accreditation and that may empower you to choose the right person for you, that's listed on that directory. So that's a great first place to start. I am the director of a place called Mindful Living Counselling and Psychology, which is based in Melbourne. And we have a team of currently 18 and growing EMDR therapists. And we are delighted to receive inquiries from people who are interested in trying EMDR therapy. We work with kids, teenagers, adults, couples and families so right across the lifespan. So certainly visiting us at mindfulliving.com.au is a great option as well. We provide services face-to-face -face for people in Melbourne, but also via telehealth and online. And we'll just mention that we have a couple of different options. Firstly, what we call standard EMDR therapy, which typically is a session once every week or perhaps once a fortnight for people who'd like to space out those sessions. We also have intensive EMDR, which is a much shorter period of time where a person has longer sessions more regularly over the course of one or two weeks. So there's a couple of different options there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. Any parting resources or thoughts or ideas for, for people listening? Any last words of wisdom? Well, just to not to give up if things have been difficult and if it's taken time to find the right therapist or the right therapy approach. I think often it's about taking the time to experiment with different things and try different things, to not give up, to continue to explore different options and also to be 
patient and gentle with yourself. As we discussed earlier, it takes time for change to happen, for those new psychological muscles to develop, and also for painful experiences in life to process through as well. So in terms of other resources, certainly I can recommend your Instagram and Facebook pages here. <laughs> The Therapy Hub and for the work that you do, I know you guys have a lot of incredible resources and certainly on the Mindful Living website, which is my practice, we have a resources page with a lot of free tip sheets, um, audio meditation tracks as well, all free available to the public. So I can certainly encourage folk to have a look at that too. Are there any EMDR self-help books? I know for almost all other therapies, there's I'm just even looking at my desk. I've got like a, you know, act workbook for perfectionism. I've got a grow yourself up, which is a family therapy one. That like, there's so many self help ones. Do do those sorts of things exist for EMDR therapy? Yeah, there's a couple of great books that provide information, not in a sort of educational kind of handout way, but actually like real life stories and a really great way of explaining EMDR therapy. One is called. Every Memory Deserves Respect. I believe that's by Deborah Korn with a K, K-O-R-N from memory. EMDR therapy is typically not the type of approach that we would encourage folk to do on their own, particularly if they're working on really painful events, because it can be challenging. And we'd encourage you to do that with the support of the therapist. But that book that I just mentioned is a great opportunity firstly to learn more about it but also to read some real life stories of people that have done this therapy to get a real vibe of what it's like and and the benefits that people can experience amazing i'll put a link to that in the show notes along with the resources and websites you mentioned thanks so much for talking us through emdr therapy and what to kind of expect for folk thank you for having me marie it's been a pleasure Thank you for listening. To keep the conversation going, head on over to Instagram or LinkedIn and follow me. If you'd like to keep updated with episodes and other interesting things happening in mental health, join my weekly This Complex Life newsletter, where I'll share tools, tips and insight. There's a link in the show notes. Got a question you want answered? Shoot me an email or a DM. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoy the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find the podcast.